0: How is Julia doing? I'm talking about the programming language, of course. What does the probabilistic programming landscape in Julia look like? What are Julia's distinctive features? And when would it be interesting to use it? To talk about that, I invited Chad Scherer. Chad is a senior research scientist at Relational AI, a company that uses artificial intelligence technologies to solve business problems. Coming from a mathematics background, Chad did his PhD at Indiana University of Bloomington and has been working in statistics and data science for a decade now. Through this experience, he's been using and developing probabilistic programming languages, so he's familiar with Python, R, PyMC, Stan, and all the blockbusters of the field, but since 2018, he's particularly interested in Julia and developed SOS, an open-source lightweight probabilistic programming package for Julia. In this episode, he'll tell us why he decided to create this package and which choices he made that made Sauce what it is today. But we'll also talk about other projects in Julia, like Turing or Gen, for instance. Okay, let's dive in. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 13, recorded February 5, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alexandora. You can follow me on Twitter at alex_andora. Like the country and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.anvil.app. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good peasy And change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? Is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability, cause every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm. Chatzerer, welcome to learning Bayesian statistics.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: You bet, yeah. Thank you for taking the time. It's great to have you on the show. You're actually my first guest from the Julia world, so I'm really excited about our conversation.
1: Thank you. First of many, I hope. There's a lot of really exciting work going on in Julia, particularly in probabilistic programming.
0: Yeah, perfect. Send them my way. (laughs) Will do. (laughs) But maybe let's start by your uh, background, because I like to do that with the guests. It's always interesting. And you uh, actually have a very mathematical background, as you did both your bachelor's and your PhD in mathematics. So I wonder what's the story behind that?
1: So, yeah, I've always been drawn to the kind of abstractions that have real-world concrete benefits. So it's kind of tying together these two ends, the, the very kind of high-level concepts and low-level implementations or kind of very concrete problems. So really anything that can bridge that gap, I've always found really exciting. So. I started off from a really abstract point. I was originally in grad school. I was originally studying algebraic topology, and I kind of felt this sort of need to get my feet a little bit more on the ground. And so when I discovered statistics, it was interesting looking at it from that perspective. So my thesis is actually statistics from a very algebraic perspective. It's this kind of group invariant sort of thing on a distribution. That's really been a big thing for me is sort of connecting these two sides, the very concrete and the very kind of high level conceptual and foundational results. And I've always kind of played that line between the very pure and applied and looking for connections.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Actually, to talk a little about what you do right now, as I said in the introduction, you recently joined the relational AI. What does the company do and how does your work fit into this?
1: Right. So it's interesting. There have been some real breakthroughs in the last few years in database theory. And as a result of these, there are a lot of optimizations that are known in the literature that haven't been reproduced in any existing system. And as it turns out, the vast majority of these, at least that I'm aware of, come from from our staff at Relational AI. Mm. So we have a database and a programming language built around all of these advances. And this supports machine learning directly from the database representation. Typically, when you do machine learning with a database, you first kind of unravel the database representation and you lose all of that structure. And then you kind of have to relearn it when you're doing the machine learning. So at Relational AI, instead we go directly from the database representation. So this is an AI native approach that has a lot of potential benefits. Talking about machine learning in a database, and when you look at the kinds of things that you can do, a really natural next step is to get probabilistic programming into this. So that's one of my goals is to find ways to connect probabilistic programming to our system.
0: Now I actually understand why it's called a relational AI. It's a pun on a relational databases, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I understood that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually something that was interesting when I uh, prepared for the episode was to notice that you used to work on Python, also on PyMC3, and now you were more into Julia. So can you walk us through your uh, programming journey?
1: Sure, yeah. So It really comes back to the same idea that I mentioned before with this kind of bridging the high level and low level. So in graduate school, that was in terms of concepts. In programming languages, it kind of maps over as you want to have, or I want to have, very high-level representation of ideas and of algorithms, but to be able to still get that really low-level speed that you do if you did something like a Rust or C or assembly language implementation of something. Typically, it's this kind of trade-off. You get to sort of pick one or the other, but I could never really decide which of those to give up. I spent a lot of time kind of bouncing between different programming languages looking for a way to really have both. So I started out in Python, but at the time there really hadn't been that focus on performance. So I started looking for, well, what else is there? I found OCaml, at the time there was this computer language shootout for kind of micro benchmark kind of stuff, and then Haskell from there. I feel like I learned a lot in both of those. There's some real, just really great work going on in functional programming in general, really great communities. But for what I was looking for, it didn't quite fit because at the time there wasn't very much of a scientific computing community. I feel like that's building up a little bit more now. But in the meantime, I have recently discovered Julia, and that turns out a really great fit for the kinds of things that... want to be able to do.
0: That's interesting. The natural question to ask then is, can you give it the elevator pitch for Julia? What are its distinctive features and when would it be interesting to use
1: it? I can talk about the kind of technical features, but the thing that you really feel when you start to use the language is the degree of modularity that you get. So you have all of these packages and things that really weren't developed with the idea of this is going to work with that will still work together really well. You can sort of mix and match things to a much greater degree than you can in a lot of languages. The great thing is there's no performance penalty for this. So if you compare this to something like Python, Python's great, there are a lot of really high quality packages, but there tend to be really large packages because you don't want to cross over into pure Python because there's a lot of overhead for that. So in Julia, there's not that limitation. It's fine having smaller packages because people can bring them together after the fact and there's no penalty. So that together with the speed, it's a really great environment for development, particularly in kind of scientific computing. And of course, probabilistic programming comes into that.
0: That's very interesting. To be honest, I I didn't know uh, a lot about Julia, but that's really interesting what you're talking about, speed and modularity. Would you say, thanks to these features, maybe that Julia is interesting to do probabilistic programming?
1: It depends on exactly how you're going about probabilistic programming. I think the modularity helps in any application development. A really nice thing about probabilistic programming for this is there are several different efforts in probabilistic programming in Julia, and we found that to a pretty high degree, you can actually still mix and match things, so I can take a sauce model, and I can use another system, like there's one out of MIT called Gen that I can connect with and I can say, okay, well, here's my sauce model. Here's how I would represent that in terms of Gen. And then I can almost for free get Gen's inference algorithms Another great example is the Turing team is doing a lot of great work. And again, as opposed to something like Python, where you would typically have a giant package to do all the things, they have their Turing package, but Turing depends on lots of these other packages. So there's one called Advanced HMC that does Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. They have one they call Distributions AD that's distributions with some add-ons to make it particularly nice for automatic differentiation the community ends up as very collaborative. I'm not competing with others because I'm going to use their tools and they're going to use my tools. It almost feels like a community effort overall as a result.
0: How can you do such small packages that depend on one another? Why is that possible compared, for instance, to Python?
1: I think it's a couple of things. I think the JIT compilation is great. That's becoming popular anyway, right? Like Python is doing a lot of JIT compilation also. But then the approach to multiple dispatch is interesting because it's elegant from a programming perspective, but it also leads to the ability for the compiler to get very high performance code. So the idea is that you have a function that can have different methods. When you call a function, it's dispatched based on the type of its algorithms. So you call a function with some particular collection of arguments. Here are the types for these arguments. The compiler will specialize for those particular types. And then if you call it later with different types, it doesn't call the same code. So you don't get this sort of runtime overhead, kind of tracking all of the dictionaries, as you don't really have another alternative in something like Python. But here, because you know at call time what the type is, and you know for this type, here is the efficient compiled version of this code to tie in, you can get very high performance.
0: So basically, it's the fact that the language is a typed language that allows you to have such performance, right?
1: It's in this weird middle ground (laughs) as far as typing. I see it referred to as a dynamic language. Hmm? So I see it referred to a lot as a dynamic language, but I think the right way to think about it is that it falls back on being a dynamically typed language. So if it doesn't know the types at compile time, it will still run. There will just be some overhead for that. One of the big challenges in getting performance in Julia, which luckily is not usually that big of a challenge, is making sure that the compiler is aware of the types at compile time. So you have to be a little bit careful about how the types work, but as long as you have that, it will be fast. And if you don't have that, like say you're just trying to crank out a very quick prototype, it'll still work kind of more along the sort of Python approach. The runtime will still typically be higher than Python, at least in my experience, and I haven't done benchmarks to confirm this, but dynamic dispatch at runtime in Julia does have some overhead, but the body of a given function is still JIT compiled. So you'll just have some overhead crossing between functions.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's very interesting. Actually, how did you come across that and how did you train yourself to this language?
1: how did I come across it? I don't even remember the first oh, really? time that I saw <laughs> it. I had had some interactions with Viral Shah, who's now the CEO of Julia Computing. I think maybe that's how it was on my radar. And together with just generally keeping my eyes open for the next big thing and the programming language, that seemed promising. As far as learning it, at a high level, it's really not that different than Python or C or Java. I mean, it has functions, it has for loops. I love Haskell. It's a really great language, but there's a really steep learning curve. And so something like that is a lot more ambitious for someone who hasn't had that experience in functional languages. Julia is very different. I think transitioning from a kind of very mainstream language to Julia, for most people, I think is relatively easy.
0: OK, well, that's good to know for our listeners that uh, that could be interested in that. Uh, it's always good to know that you have that under your belt if you want to.
1: Right, right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about probabilistic programming landscape in Julia? Because I guess it's the most interesting part for our audience.
1: Sure. So of course, there's Sauce, my project. Yeah. The two maybe most visible, if you say to the broad sort of Julia community, tell us about probabilistic programming in Julia, the two names that you'll hear the most, I think would be Turing and Gen. So I already talked a little bit about those. There are some other projects. There's one called Omega from Zena Tavares. And I believe that takes an abstract interpretation kind of approach. There's another one called Poirot from Mike Innes. Mike is well known for a lot of the automatic differentiation work that he's done and things like Flux, also utility tools like macro tools. Then there's Stheno by Will Tebbett. Stheno is interesting because you can write it like a probabilistic programming language. The syntax actually looks pretty similar to Sauce syntax, but it's all in terms of Gaussian processes. Mm. And this is one that I haven't done a lot yet with Steno and Sauce kind of integration, but I think there's a lot of potential in that because obviously I'd love to get some more Gaussian process kind of capabilities into Sauce. There are other companies that have a lot of internal work going on. I know that Charles River Analytics is doing a lot of work internally with Julia. And then of course, Relational AI. Our tool stack is basically all Julia. There might be some other languages here and there, but that's our main go-to. So yeah, and we're of course using it for this database work, implementing these theoretical advances and kind of you know realizing those. And then the machine learning set of things and moving toward probabilistic programming as well. Hmm.
0: Are all of the projects you just mentioned uh, open source? I mean, uh, can listeners go on GitHub for them and uh, see for themselves uh, if it could be interesting for them?
1: The Charles River Analytics, they're using Julia internally, and the same with Relational AI. Although Relational AI does have some open source packages, I'm not sure Charles River Analytics might as well. All of the other ones are open source. Okay,
0: perfect. Maybe we can also put them in the show notes for people to see them as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. We'll add some links. Perfect.
0: So before diving into your project, particularly into Sauce, I'd like to just ask you if you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods and why do you still use them today?
1: Sure. So 10 years ago, I was on a grant that funded this work that would eventually become STAN. Mm. So I wasn't involved STAN development itself. I was kind of doing some of the kind of precursor kind of work. and At the time, both Bayesian analysis and anything to do with compilers were really just completely new to me. Luckily, I had met some really great compiler people at a company in Portland called Galois. Mm -hmm. I learned everything I could about Bayesian analysis and what we need to do to build inference algorithms. And then I took care of the what and they took care of the how. And we built this system. It's Haskell-based probabilistic programming language called Passage. And this is in Haskell. And when you run a passage model, it builds C code with OpenMP pragmas for parallelism that does Gibbs sampling. That was very early work in probabilistic programming. It was very early work in probabilistic programming for me. <laughs> that was kind of my start. And by then, I was hooked. I guess as to why it's still interesting to me, I think it's this. It gives you a sort of calculus for reasoning about data. And it also gives you a way to really get an understanding of the data and how the model connects with the data uh, in a lot deeper way than than most modeling methods that I've seen. Yeah. Again, it's sort of yet another of these kind of connecting the high level and low level in my mind.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I really agree with you. It's really interesting in this framework that you really have to dig deep into your model and really think about your assumptions, your priors, how you're gonna fit the model, Right. I have to say, uh, and I guess for some users, at least early users, it's frustrating because it's harder to use than out-of-the-box tools because, well, you have to do some thinking and it takes more time. But then when you really understand the stuff under the hood and you really understand what you get for free once your model fits, then as you said, you're kind of hooked.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There are some tools that you can use that are sort of black box. I mean, there's Bayesian linear regression that you can use anytime you would use a sort of standard least squares. But to do sort of what I think of as kind of the real stuff, (laughs) maybe that's just because that's the part of it that I enjoy, but there's an investment there. Yeah. I think that it's rare that it doesn't pay off. I mean, it, it typically does pay off, both in your understanding and the results you get, and being able to quantify the uncertainty in a very careful way. Yeah, but still, it is an investment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that can be a hard pill to swallow in some cases.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. As you say, it's an investment. It's a good metaphor because in the beginning you have to spend a lot of time and resources to get the ball going, but then you win a lot of time. So it's a really a situation where you have to lose some time. At the beginning to win even more time after some time, but yeah, if you're only focusing on the short term, it can look like it's worthless. But I really think on balance, the net benefit is positive.
1: On the flip side, just to, I guess play devil's advocate with what I just said too. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> um, there are very simple Bayesian models that you can use. If you have a given problem, mm. you can just start with the simplest possible model that is at all reasonable and then kind of look for where it goes wrong and then make it a little bit more complex. And I think Gelman advises an approach something like this, where you sort of have this progressive levels of complexity as you learn about the shortcomings of the simple model. And then it's just a question, I mean, it's, you know, in software, there's this idea of agile development. And it almost has that kind of feel, right? Like you have sort of progressively better model fits and it's just a question of when do you stop? Yeah, exactly. As opposed to in some other scenarios, you may have to just okay, well, that didn't work. Now I have to start over entirely. Mm. The sort of human cost is, I guess, just different Mm. than traditional methods.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It actually echoes uh, what a lot of guests have said on this podcast, Yeah, that the best way is uh, probably to start small and then get bigger, which most of the time goes against our intuition. I guess (laughs) most of us, and at least I do that. I want to start by the most difficult model because I love this technique and I know what are the best benefits, then the model doesn't fit. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, of course, I have to start again for with a small model and then get bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's weird. <laughs> okay, that's fascinating to talk about that. And now I'd like to talk about your project about Soss. So S-O-S-S. It's right. the package you created to probabilistic programming in Julia. What is it? And how did it come into life?
1: So I mentioned Passage, and after that, Galois won a grant for a DARPA program, this Probabilistic Programming for Advancing Machine Learning. So they were involved with that to do language evaluation. So I joined there as technical lead of this language evaluation team. Really a great experience. I got to work with all of these different probabilistic programming languages that people were developing from this program. I got to be involved with the summer school for that program, that sort of thing. So it was really a good experience. And um, toward the end of that, we were able to do some PPL development work. That was still in Haskell. I love Haskell, but for me and for the thing that I was trying to do, it still felt like the type system was really getting in my way more than it was helping. And I wanted to do probabilistic programming. I didn't want to do type theory research. So maybe someday there will be sort of type theoretic representation that will make it all just work, and then it'll be amazing. But until then, (laughs) that's that's not the way that I'll approach it. So there was that, and there was also, for metaprogramming, there's this template Haskell that you can use. It seems like a powerful way to do metaprogramming, but in the Haskell community, I always heard people kind of very strongly advising against it. So it kind of had this second-class citizen sort of status, in a sense, and just generally was not advised Starting off from Passage and then some of these different developments during my time with PAML, the Probabilistic Programming for Advancing Machine Learning, you know, it was still in this sort of arc of looking for the right programming language environment to do this kind of work. And then by the time I found Julia, I felt like everything sort of clicked. I mean, the community has a very strong numerical computing focus and it had the metaprogramming support you can do work at the type level when you want to so it has all of those capabilities that for me feels like the right fit so at that point there was this thing i had been wanting to build and i couldn't not build it <laughs> once so i found the right language so that's how Sauce came to be. That was a little bit wordier than I intended. But
0: <laughs> no, 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 no! It's really interesting to have the whole backstory, you know. So basically, if listeners, when I go and start uh, doing probabilistic programming in Julia, they can just uh, mm-hmm. use uh, Sauce. I don't even know how it works in Julia. Is it like in Python, you just do something like pip install Sauce, then you can go from there?
1: You go into the package manager. They have this clever thing in Julia where you hit the right closing square bracket and that will take you to the package manager and then you just say add sauce and it will install
0: what can users uh, do then with sauce they can uh, define all the models they want you said that you wanted to implement more Gaussian processes stuff so what can they do right
1: now there's this distinction between embedded domain specific languages or dsls and standalone dsls So Stan is an example of a standalone. Because there's the entire Stan language and you don't sort of program Stan within some other environment, something like PyMC3 is embedded. So you use that within Python, and you can sort of bring Python things into play when you do PyMC3. So Sauce is the latter. Sauce is an embedded domain-specific language in Julia. And you can write Julia functions, Julia distributions, that kind of thing. You can bring those into play in any Sauce model. It's a declarative probabilistic program Programming language And what I mean by that is you express different variables and how those variables are related. It's not a matter of do this thing and then do that thing. That's an imperative approach. So you have a model, you have some collection of variables. Typically, you would write this a lot like what you would see in something like a Bayesian analysis journal article or textbook. It looks very similar. You know, in SAUCE, you literally can write x tilde normal mu sigma, and that can be a line in your model. The models that you can represent, I guess, Any Stan model can be represented in Sauce, but you can also represent things that have discrete parameters. The limitation is you can have a fixed number of components. On the other hand, one of those components could, under the hood, could be like a Dirichlet process mixture model or something like that. So it's really the high-level components have to be a fixed number, and that's similar to Stan. The difference from Stan is that any one of those can, in principle, extend to whatever you like.
0: That's very clear. It makes me when I try it out.
1: <laughs> I, I hope you do. <laughs> yeah, it
0: truly really sounds awesome. Congrats on this project, honestly. And- Thank you. I bet you had to do some choices and you encountered difficulties. So what are actually the core choices you made and the difficulties you faced that made SOS what it is today?
1: Right, okay. So most Bayesian inference algorithms are iterative. You know, So if you look at something like HMC, you have this loop, So you need the center of the loop to be as fast as possible. So we wanted to have these inference primitives inside the loops, so this led to code generation. To me, that's a pretty natural thing to want. But code generation works best when you can leverage as much information as possible. So you get that information to the compiler in order to give you the best possible optimizations. So for that, it's ideal if you can have something that you can analyze statically. So it's kind of this big chain of events, right? So iteration means fast loops, fast loops, code generation. Code generation means you want to be able to analyze it statically. And if you want to be able to analyze it statically, a declarative modeling language is kind of a natural thing to reach for. So that's what led to it being declarative. Another thing was that I was stuck on was now that it's declarative, you have this DAG of all of the different variables with the dependencies, right? But the way that you'll see in a lot of probabilistic programming languages is the observed data is passed as an argument to the function. But this is kind of weird from the point I was working at because now you have this thing that you get at the very beginning, but then you also get it at the very end. So it's this kind of dependency cycle. So how do you unravel this? And what I hit upon with Sauce is that you don't need to have that at all. The model does not have to know what the observed data are you can leave that out until it's time for inference. So a model, you can think of it like, you know, when you write normal, mu, sigma, well, mu and sigma are arguments, and when you say normal of mu and sigma, that produces a density. Well, sauce is the same kind of thing. You have a model that has some arguments, and once you give it the arguments, it produces a joint density among all of these variables. And now, if you wanna condition on some of those variables, that's where inference comes in. It's cleanly separated, and models are now like functions. Another nice thing about this is because models are like functions, we can make models first class. So you can pass a model in as an argument into another model. You can have a model as a distribution that one of the variables in a model follows, that sort of thing.
0: Hmm. How is that different for SOS than, for instance, what's going on in PyMC3, or is it exactly the same thing?
1: So in PyMC3, a model includes, as part of the model specification, what variable are observed. Yeah, okay. You would say model x, y. You XY. don't do that at all. Like You can't do that. <laughs> there, there's no way to do that. Hello? Instead, you would say, here's my model. And then when you do inference, you have to say, okay, I want this model with these arguments, and here's the observed data. Mm -hmm. It it entirely separates this idea of the model and the inference. That means in Sauce, you can say, I've got my model. Now simulate some data from it. Okay, now what if I observed this variable, infer the others? What if I observed a different variable? You can do that with no problem.
0: Okay, so you don't have the difference that you have, for instance, in PyMC3 between sample prior predictive, sample sample posterior predictive, also, right. also changing the values of the predictor variables, for instance, to do out of sample predictions?
1: Right. Yeah. So that's a great point. So in SAS, we also have functions that take a model and return a new model. So for example, you can do forward sampling from a model mm-hmm. or Say I have mu and sigma, and that produces an x Hmm. as, say, normal mu sigma. I can say, sample that forward, and maybe my mu and my sigma follow some distribution. But I can also say, what if sigma is equal to 1 and mu is still random? What would that look like? This sort of forward predictive sampling. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can do that, but then you can go a step further, and you can say, instead of passing in a number... For one of my parameters, I'm going to pass in a vector. There's a great package called Monte Carlo Measurements that lets you write a vector and treat it as if it's a single number. It does this sort of particle filtering kind of approach. Mm. But you can do this and plug one of these in for your parameters and then propagate that forward. This is a great way to do posterior predictive checks.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) It's actually really adapted to a Bayesian workflow. Great. And actually, is it like more of a positive side effect of how you decided to implement certain parts of Sauce or was it an objective? when you started out writing the package?
1: It's some of both. I mean, the idea with having the observed data not specified in the model, that was a matter of, I have this dependency graph, and it has this cycle. And how do I get rid of the cycle? Mm. So fighting and fighting with that. And by the time I saw it, it was just totally obvious. And then it turns out that that has all of these other side effects. And then you start to go, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do that. By the way, as it turns out, when I later learned about the work that MIT team is doing on Gen, it turns out that they're taking a similar approach. So they also do not specify the observed data as part of the model. So I'm seeing this as a little bit of a trend and and I hope we'll see other PPLs taking this approach because I found it to just be a huge benefit.
0: It's because you did that it allows you to have all these nice benefits about forward sampling and posterior predictive checks. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. But actually, it sounds like uh, you can do a lot of things with uh, sauce. But I remember that in September 2019, you gave a talk at Strata New York. And you defined sauce as the lightweight way of uh, doing probabilistic programming. So maybe can you tell us what you meant by lightweight?
1: Sure. Yeah. So there are a few things here. First, Sauce is embedded in Julia and embedded languages tend to be smaller. So if you build something like Stan, this is much more ambitious. It has to be big because it's its own language and so you have to build all of the parts. So it can't not be heavy. That's not a bad quality. That's just the nature of a standalone language. So. Sauce is lighter in that sense. The syntax is also really light. It's similar to what you'd see in like a journal article or a textbook. So a lot of people will say this, our PPL has a very simple syntax, but it's usually not to the degree of literally writing X tilde normal mu sigma. There are only a few PPLs where it gets to that degree of simplicity and that degree of similarity with the mathematical approach. Third, there's the runtime overhead. So in Sauce, we're doing code generation. And that means that you can specialize the code to a given model. And beyond that, you can specialize to a given type of observed data. I haven't done a lot at this point with, say, like an array with a bunch of missing values. But you can build code in Sauce to do things like, here is this model observed on a dense array. Here it is observed on a sparse array where maybe a lot of the values are missing. And you can have specialized code for each of those different cases. And this can, in principle, be exactly what you would write by hand. That's the third sense of lightweight, it's just the runtime overhead is very, very low.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering uh, what you're using to do the MCMC sampling in SOS. Did you implement your own samplers or?
1: Oh, no. (laughs) So I think I mentioned inference primitives earlier. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so we generate code for the log density. And then we also generate code for things like how to generate a random sample from a distribution and that kind of thing. And then these are sort of kernels that can go into any inference method. When I started off, the Turing wasn't very far along with their work in HMC. So I started off using a library called Dynamic HMC from Tamash Pub. That's a great library. Since then, the Turing team has made a new library that's also very robust and high-performance called Advanced HMC. And again, Julia is great because you can sort of mix and match these things. So we can plug into either one of those. That's just the HMC side of things. There are other inference algorithms out there. That hasn't yet been a focus, but it's sort of low-hanging fruit, right? Because if you have a given inference algorithm, just saying, okay, connect sauce to this or that is very simple.
0: That's where what you talked about at the beginning, the easiness to do right. that in Julia comes into play.
1: Exactly, right. Okay,
0: very interesting. And actually, we're going to put that also in the show notes, the project you mentioned, dynamic HMC and advanced HMC. It's a kind of the workhorse of the Bayesian yes. inference. Right,
1: right. <laughs> oh, and also Monte Carlo measurements. There's one called Monte Carlo measurements.jl. It's really nice because internally it represents it as a vector, but the screen representation is the mean plus or minus the standard deviation. When you take, say, like a posterior for a given distribution, you get this nice, really easy to read representation. It's all thanks to that package. And the same thing with the way I do posterior predictive checks really leverages that also. So that's another case of there's this other library. It was never intended. It wasn't built with sauce in mind, but, oh, it turns out I can use that. And it just makes a big difference.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah, that's awesome. Actually, maybe we can, because we're getting a little short on time, but (laughs) well, first do the present, because I'm wondering how widespread Bayesian methods are in your line of work. Maybe how often you get to fire up the Bayesian machinery because you develop a lot. I guess it takes a (laughs) lot of time. So do you have time to actually test and use all the things you develop?
1: It's been a while. I've done some blogging and some sort of example models for Sauce. As far as a kind of larger scale model for a particular application, that's been a little while. I've really been more focused on the tool building for the last few years.
0: Mm, that's fascinating to me. I'm really impressed by the fact that you managed to build this library uh, without using uh, Bayesian tools every day. I mean, uh, I really have some, <laughs> well... some difficulties to, to, to use them myself. I'm like, oh yeah, if I had to build that on my own, I would be completely overwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Right. Well, there's some blog entries I have on examples in PyMC3. So I spent a lot of time with PyMC3. I did some consulting work years ago and, and used Stan for a lot of that. Things like revenue forecasting. I used Stan exclusively for that at the time with R. But at a certain point, okay, well, there are all of these inference methods and... The things that I've been focusing on to this point are cases where large complex models are just bigger versions of simple models. So if I can get something relatively simple to work, then the complex things work with the same, it's just a little bit bigger program. It's like if you design a programming language. If you design a programming language, that doesn't require writing a million line application, but before you start, right, you can kind of build that up as you
0: go. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's also valuable for you to get some um, feedback from uh, users of Sauce. Yeah, so I think uh, if some listeners are using it, we can encourage them to go to the GitHub repo and fill some issues, or even better, some PRs to help you to help you uh, get even more feedback.
1: Issues and you know pull requests are okay too. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. I guess they are always okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's amazing what you did with the project. I'm really impressed by that. There is one question I like to ask to my guests is if they have a favorite model or method that they are uh, always happy to use. But I guess in your case, it's not really relevant. And what would be more relevant would be to talk about advances in probabilistic programming that you think are particularly exciting to you. What do you see for the future of probabilistic programming?
1: Sure. So, first, there's everything in the Julia ecosystem. I'm just amazed every day at at the kinds of things that I see there. I think that's definitely a place to look for sort of the next big thing. Also, there's this, and I don't even know how they pronounce it, but Eta Loomis, it's simulate backwards. (laughs) This very large-scale implementation. This is Frank Wood's group is doing work on this. They do a lot of great stuff in general. But I think Bayesian analysis still needs a killer app. It still needs a, wow, this amazing thing we could not have done without it. And that seems like very much a step in the right direction. I'm really excited about that. Also, I've had some discussions the last few days with Martin Trapp and Guy Vandenbroek, about uh, probabilistic circuits. There's a lot of work going on in tractable inference. That's something that's really new to me, but I think there are a lot of exciting opportunities there. The idea of very flexible models that are also very quick to perform inference on is really, I think, important. And then, of course, our work underway at Relational AI. There's a lot of exciting stuff there, so keep an eye out, and there will be more of that as we progress.
0: It really looks like an exciting and dynamic uh, ecosystem.
1: Yeah, it really is. It's very exciting. There's just so much going on. It's really a fun place to be. Yeah,
0: And actually, do you have an educational resource you can advise to listeners who want to learn Julia?
1: There's some good stuff. Let's put that in the show notes. Yeah. There's not a particular one off the top of my head, but I'm sure we can find some good ones and link to it.
0: OK, perfect. Yeah, that would okay. be great. Because I guess if listeners are interested in sauce and so on, uh, maybe they need to learn Julia first if they don't. Know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think we covered uh, a lot. Maybe I'm wondering, because any project you know, has some path dependencies, We talked about that, for instance, with uh, Jun Peng Lao in Episode 7, and he highlighted the fact that in PyMC3, if they had to do it all over again, which is kind of the thing they do with (laughs) PyMC4, they would redo all the shape handling, because there is some common problems in the shape handling of PyMC3. And so I wonder if you have something like that in SOS, is there a point an issue that you would implement differently if you had to do it all over again today? Or maybe on a more positive note, is there something that you would like to redo even better if you could and had the time to do that all over again?
1: Absolutely. I think as far as things I wish I had done differently, a system that has widespread adoption, I think has this problem a little bit more. It's it's kind of a cost of success sort of thing. So Sauce is still new enough that if there's a, oh, I wish we had done this, we've done that. (laughs) So the system is not so big. Last I looked, it was a thousand lines of code. It might be 1500 by now, but it's not giant. So it still can turn pretty quickly. If there were anything, we would be doing it. There's something that we do where we leverage SimPy. Um, So we'll take the log density and put that in SimPy, and then we have a couple of simplifications that we do there. And then we use that to generate code. And the code that we generate is typically a lot faster than sort of the default um, representation, but the implementation of that is not so clean. (laughs) So I think that there are better ways to do that, but it's a matter of resources. SymPy has this representation that we could leverage relatively easily. Mm -hmm.
0: So SymPy maybe for listeners, can you just define?
1: Oh, sorry. Yeah, sure. So SymPy is Python library to do symbolic manipulation. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a computer algebra system for Python. And Julia calls Python and R and C and whatever very easily. So there's a SimPy.jl where you can call out to SimPy and do these kinds of simplifications. So SimPy is cool. SimPy.jl is cool. Our way of interfacing with those two is not pretty (laughs) at the moment. So that's something that I think could use a lot of
0: cleaning up. Okay. I hope you get the time to do that. Thank you. (laughs) you. Okay, that was a great talk, Chad. Before letting you go, though, as you know, I have to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. The first one is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve?
1: I think it's right where I am. (laughs) I would want Sauce to be in the place that Stan or PyMC3 are as far as everything is very well documented. There's test cases on all the code. There's people blogging about it. And I mean, that just would be amazing. And then also really build up a strong connectivity with other Julia probabilistic programming languages. I just think there's a huge amount of potential there. I'm really excited about the work that we're doing at Relational AI and the way that probabilistic programming can come to play there. I don't know that it will be Sauce that connects, but some of the ideas of Sauce, I think, will be very useful as that progresses. So that's really exciting to me.
0: Awesome. And the second question is, if you could have dinner with uh, any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, how would it be?
1: I think dinner with someone is not like studying with someone for five years, right? So I think I have to go with someone like maybe Aristotle, because I have this sort of benefit of history, right? So as opposed to my being just completely overwhelmed and lost, it could be a little bit more of a back and forth conversation just because of the history. And then I think also it's always interesting to see someone coming from a very different context and how they think of things, this brilliant man with very, very different experiences from me. What problems is he working on? Do those relate to my problems? Vice versa. Hmm. This kind of exchange of ideas I think is really
0: great. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice choice. Especially if you go to Greece to have dinner, it's even better.
1: Yeah, that
0: could work. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, Chad, uh, thank you. It was really great learning about Julia and your different projects. You sure do a lot of things and SUS looks really amazing. I'm sure it got listeners attention and I think you convinced Uh, some of them to give it a try. So I wish you good luck on this project. And thank you uh, for all the open source work you do. As usual, I put uh, resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So thank you again, Chad, for taking the time and being on this show.
1: Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm happy to have the opportunity to do a show like this.
0: Yeah, thank you. You bet. It's a really interesting project you've got there. So I'm really glad we got to cover it on the show.
1: Thank you. That's kind of you to say.
0: Bye. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learn bass app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, fit MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good crazy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is
1: making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.